This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Hello, I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association, and I'm your host on Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Hi, listeners, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. This is the first in a two-part special series of virtual public programs presented by NCA. Now, NCA typically holds public programs twice each year, and these public programs serve to disseminate relevant information about communication to public audiences. The programs are open to community members, members of the media, communication teachers and students, anyone really who's interested in learning more about communication. And past programs have focused on topics such as communicating about the role of race and social change in politics and communicating about the climate. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, NCA's 2021 public programming will be held as a special series of the Communication Matters podcast, as well as a series of videos. This series, entitled Communication and Resilience, COVID in Contexts, will include two public programs. And the first, today's, in the series is entitled The Future of Education, Identifying Challenges and Opportunities in Pandemic Learning. Today, we're going to focus on how COVID-19 has brought changes to education and how those changes create challenges, while at the same time offering opportunities for digital learning moving forward. So be sure to check out NCA's YouTube channel for a video recording of today's conversation in this special public programming series. We're thrilled to have joining us today for the conversation about pandemic learning, an all-star panel of pandemic learners and teachers. Vanita Agarwal is the Associate Professor at Salisbury University and Chair of the NCA Teaching and Learning Council. Mindy Fenske is an Associate Professor at the University of South Carolina. Elena Gillis is an Assistant Professor at St. Lawrence University. Chris Gurry is Associate Professor at the University of Tampa. Matthew Hubbs is Dean of Academics at Westcliff University. And Shannon Bork-Van Horn is a professor at Valley City State University and the former chair of NCA's Teaching and Learning Council. You can view all of our panelists' detailed full bios at our website at natcom.org slash public programs, all one word. Hi, everyone. Welcome so much, and thank you so much for joining us today on Communication Matters. You know, the transition to online learning and a virtual learning experience last March was done really quickly and really suddenly. And I'm hoping that we can have a discussion to start us off today about how that adjustment period went for all of you at your institutions and how you feel you're doing a, a year later in this new era of pandemic learning. And maybe Vanita will start us off and, and let us know how, how things are going at Salisbury. Thanks, Trevor, for that very relevant question. And you're right, when the pandemic really closed our campuses almost at a moment's notice, it was like 
within a weekend that we were we all found ourselves almost home and teaching from our personal spaces i think one of the most important things for me speaking as an educator was to maintain a sense of continuity for myself but also for my students who were moving equally suddenly from their classroom spaces which were very physical to being little squares on a zoom box and that too if they were fortunate because many of them were also struggling with disruptions in their technology and in their home spaces where access and family members were sometimes going to be competing for the same resources. So my goal was to maintain that sense of continuity with in my life, but also with my students' lives, minimize that sense of disruption in the learning experience. But also, most importantly, I think I realized as the first week and the second week went by that students also looked forward to that connection online as a way of seeing, uh, you know, the same faces again, feeling a sense of normalcy. So that was almost a space of being vulnerable for me, myself, but also for our students, having that emotion, being able to accept that we were all addressing things and learning was a way of processing that sense of change. And also to maintain, I I don't quite like the use of word control because it is so definitive and it presumes so much, but to sort of reclaim a sense of community and togetherness and a sense of we can guide our, shape our direction moving forward in ways that provide us with the opportunities, as you had said, in this crisis. And now I think I would say that this it's brought a sense of realization that isolation and distance they're not just physical concepts but they're also metaphorical in some ways <laughs> and so as much as we may be connecting on zoom we've all realized we can create community in different ways to me it offers an opportunity to look at that those constraints are also as visible as they are for many of our students but they're also ways for us to connect at a very human level with each other's identities as learners which was different in a face-to-face context but is very different online and of course to use a little bit of humor zoom memes for quarantines during the zoom time was very <laughs> interesting it always helped my students and i get through i would i'll wrap up this one by saying a sense of vulnerability and also keeping the fact that we could all through a sense of community find our way onward from here what about at usc mindy how are we looking at the transition period maybe a year out into something different or the same in the fall? Um, Well, um, first of all, I just wanted to thank the Teaching and Learning Council. I think that there are lots of resources that were quickly put up on the NCA website for online transition and learning. And I don't know if everybody's aware of them, but they are there and they are useful and they continue to be so. And so I just wanted to thank thank y'all's work on that because one of the difficulties in the transition obviously was getting up to speed on a bunch of technology that I may or may not have uh, had any previous experience with. So part of the question here is, you know, what, how did the, how did the institution respond? Right. And they did their best, right. Ish. And because there was, we, this was spring break for us. Right. And so students just didn't come back from spring break. We'd, which gave all of us shocked faculty members a week to figure out an online transmission delivery method. And let's be honest, there are a small amount of people who are really, really good at this. And then the rest of the, a lot of people who just 
sort of knew some of this. And then a whole bunch of us who were like, what is Zoom? I look back at my syllabus that I rewrote in that week. And I talked about Zoom like it was like this alien technology. Like the language in my original syllabus that I reread, I was like, if this Zoom thing works, right? My institution tried. I mean, they tried putting webcams in all the rooms. They did that work. They did fine. And I think that they made the right decision, right? I mean, I think that there was no question that the right decision was made to to turn to the online format. But it's difficult for an institution to put together a whole bunch of resources overnight in order to facilitate hundreds of faculty members to learn an entire platform of delivery and transmission that they had no experience with. And so I think they did as well as they could given the time constraints. I'm fortunate because I, in fact, I have a a colleague, Pat Gerke, who does this, right? This is his thing, right? He does online learning. And so I was able to turn to Pat a lot and he was just amazingly generous with all of the tools in his pillbox. Transition, I've been teaching hybrid for quite a while now. I can my I can operationalize hybrid when we get to questions about pedagogy and whatnot. So I'll get there. We're moving, at least as of today, we're moving to face to face, pure face to face, in the fall of 21. And I think that there's a certain amount of trepidation behind that for a certain amount of our faculty members, based on. And I think the last time I checked in South Carolina, there was a 26 to 27 percent vaccination rate in our state. And so I think there's a little bit of trepidation and there's been conversations about, you know, requiring vaccination and whether or not we're going to be masking in the fall and that kind of thing. And so that's in the transition. There's we had all of that sort of upheaval and uncertainty that happened when we went online. And now another round of upheaval and uncertainty as we make a transition to more face to face kind of learning. So that's sort of how the institution is sort of dealing with it. It's been crazy. And then sort of personally, at the same time, my computer crashed and our office building was flooded. So that also contributed to the insanity that was the transition. <laughs> that was the, yeah. So I've been out of, a, out of my office for um, since June of last summer. So there's an extra layer in terms of my personal experience that sort of makes everything a little bit more crazy making. Bringing literal truth to the phrase, when it rains, it pours. <laughs> Pretty much so, yes. Yes, indeed. But yeah, so at the end of the day, I think, I mean, some places have done better than others. But that's just the way things work. I think that the University of South Carolina is doing well. They could do better. But I think that I want to be generous and say that, that there's a whole bunch of people who had a whole bunch of work put on them that they didn't anticipate. And so not everybody's going to be perfect. Did you see the same thing, Elena? Were the institutional reactions similar, the same, different, more successful, less successful at St. Lawrence? So I'm actually in a little bit of a different situation than everyone else here because last March I was actually finishing graduate school. And so that transition was announced less than two weeks before I was supposed to defend my dissertation. And I was also teaching a class. And so I was actually simultaneously experiencing a remote transition as both a student and an instructor. And now, you know, I'm working at a liberal arts college. And so I've really been able to see how two different institutions are responding in the process of collecting data from students about how each institution's transition has gone and students' experiences with it. So I would say last spring, it really felt like this big emergency. You know, if I had to use one word to categorize it, it was chaos, where all of a sudden we needed to be making new choices and new decisions. 
And there were no best practices because this isn't just remote teaching. This is emergency remote teaching. And so, and that distinction matters because, you know, my students sometimes went home to places that didn't have any internet access because they never were supposed to attend school there. Or my students, you know, their parents lost jobs and now all of a sudden they need to be working a full-time job so that they don't get evicted from their homes. And so this, you know, emergency crisis wasn't just with remote teaching. It was with entire worlds crumbling around all of us, both our students and our, and the instructors. And so, you know, the spring, I think that I was attending University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, finishing up my dissertation there. And I think it was chaos, but I don't think that they necessarily could have done anything better to help prevent that chaos. And so I think for me going forward, when thinking about how is the institution doing a year later, to me, the dominant word now is uncertainty. So we're you know, planning for one possibility, but then having to have numerous contingencies about that at the institutional level, we can think about that, you know, in our approach as instructors. I'm really appreciative that that's what I was, that's how I've been encouraged to approach every semester by my chair, by my administration, is to think of this as we want you to have a plan in place, but we want you to think about the fact that things might have to change. And so going into it knowing that I don't need to have a perfect plan in place because almost certainly something's going to change at St. Lawrence. We, in order to de-densify campus, we had students being able to join remote, which had never happened before. We had some online classes that St. Lawrence has never happened had before during a normal semester. We also created this third semester this summer so that we could have students attend fall, spring, or summer, instead of summer being sort of extra classes, it was a normal semester where students could attend, for instance, spring and summer and get their normal financial aid packages. That was supposed to include things like study abroad, all in-person classes. And of course, that has been completely overhauled. And so my colleagues and I, are our classes just ended for the spring last week. And now we're starting to think about what is summer going to look like in comparison to what we had thought it would be. And so I think But I think at this point that we, this lasting uncertainty for a year has helped us all be a lot calmer and able to be a lot more flexible as we've learned the tools and structures that can help promote these sort of successful transitions. And with institutions that when all of a sudden conditions changed, had a contingency already in place. And so, yes, there have been moments of chaos and stress when at one point in the fall semester, I think a quarter of our campus got put in a preventative quarantine at some point. And all of a sudden, you know, classes were remote for that week, but we had these contingencies in place. And so I think that that's sort of the best we can hope for if we want to have any sort of in-person component, which I was appreciative to be able to have that experience being a new faculty member to be able to choose to teach some in person just so I could start to get to know my new campus. But a lot of my colleagues were allowed to choose to teach fully remote. That's a great segue to our next sort of concern. And and Chris, you might be in a great position to, to think and relate to us more fully how pedagogical values and strategies and techniques that you've developed during the pandemic, are some of those just going to go away if we go back to in-person teaching? Or what are some of the strategies and techniques that you've managed to adopt during this crisis, so to speak? And are any of those going to linger on when we go back to in-person teaching? Well, I can't say I uh, would miss not having to get fully dressed to drive to campus on <laughs> one meeting for 40 minutes, right, for Zoom. So we can keep that around. But um, <laughs> I do think that there'll be some pedagogical things that stick around, but some that I think trail us 
And we're still seeing sort of the remnants of this past year to follow up to the previous question, such that I direct the Master of Arts and Professional Communication program, which was launched to be a fully face-to-face program. Uh Now we have students asking to do things on Zoom that we never pedagogically planned to put online. And so I think we're stuck in a similar situation that maybe corporate America is where, well, it worked a year ago and it worked now. So why can't I do this thing the way that I want to do this thing? I want to go to New York and have a job and just drop into your class when I want to. And so, so that's one thing I think is we're going to see sort of this wake of things that we did, as Mindy said, in an emergency and see them codified into sort of practice. But my hope for all of the people here and out there would be that it we codified into best practices, what's best impact for our students. And so I think we'll see some things stay. And then I think there's things I hope go away, right? I still have some colleagues that are lecturing on Zoom for two hours. You can't lecture on a computer screen for two hours when those poor students have two more classes to go in that afternoon. Nobody should sit at a computer for six hours without taking a break. And so I hope that we learn best practices around those things that we've all adopted. You know, NCA has had really great resources for getting up, moving around, and offering some sort of high-touch and low-touch experiences through Zoom. So that's what I'd have to say about that, is I think we'll be dealing with sort of the wake of what we did in an emergency situation, and hopefully we'll keep some of the best things, like short meetings could be on Zoom, and then we'll go back to some of the great team-building things where there's a high-touch experience for our students. Yeah, that's interesting. That transition is going to be a real challenging moment for a lot of us. Matthew, over at Westcliff, do are there any particular pedagogical values, techniques, or strategies that you think are going to survive? Or like Chris, maybe some of the worst ones will go away. What are some of the best practices that you're going to take away from the pandemic learning experience? Thank you, Trevor, for the question. The unique setup we have at Westcliff is we've actually been doing live online learning for over 10 years. Our online program is really a mirror of our on-site program. In fact, often we would combine classes together with some technology set up in classrooms. So uh, the transition wasn't that challenging for us, at least not nearly as much as those who had no exposure to it. Uh, we did find the need to provide faculty who w- would would have preferred to been on site and, and weren't as comfortable teaching online and would, you know, would do it if, if that's what the class required or the students required, that they did require some additional support, development, training, using tools to keep students engaged. In this digital platform, uh, you know, there's a lot of competition on that screen and students can look like they're engaged and absolutely not be. So I do agree that the two hour lecture, you know, has no place in this environment. It really needs to be an engaging uh, process. Uh, As far as what I think that we will see moving forward, I I believe that this pandemic has really served as uh, an accelerant for embracing online learning. I think more people, I, I think that when the, when the tide sort of ebbs, 
back to somewhat normalcy. I don't think it ebbs back all the way. I think more people have been exposed to what they were maybe fearful of or felt unsure about and have found a confidence in being able to learn or teach in that environment. And I think that we'll see, you know, more prevalence there. I, I don't think by any means it's going to replace in-person instruction, but I think more people have been exposed to learning in this capacity and, and quite frankly, are more comfortable with it, have seen the value of the flexibility it provides, have found out they can be successful in it, and will will likely choose to stay with it once choice becomes theirs again. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question, that balance, I think, between how we're going to negotiate this return to face-to-face and yet still recognizing that a lot of people are going to enjoy and want to continue the online learning experience. Shannon, do you think that's a balance that can be struck or are we in for some some tumult over the next few years? First off, I think that our first-year students that are going to be coming to us now from schools that have been doing this now in high school, for them, it's not going to be as unusual as it is for all of us in teaching a course. They may think that this is what courses look like now, because that's what they've been doing in high school um, the past year and a half. So I think that we're going to see students there maybe a bit, our first years being a bit more adept, the traditional students. I think that this is going to be more of a, a challenge for us as seasoned faculty members, because I mean, admit it, we joined the academy partly because we like talking to people face to face. And we really did that. And so I think this is going to be more of an adjustment for us. I do see synchronous courses continuing. I keep saying synchronous, and we have really put, our guess, our classes maybe in a box, in different boxes or categories at VCSU, especially this fall. We have it listed in our catalog or in our um, actual schedule whether a class is going to be asynchronous, and we've been doing that for years, are many majors that have been asynchronous online. So we've been doing that and doing it well for years. We have labeled whether it's a face-to-face, which we've also been doing pretty well. And then we have that synchronous thing. And I really, you know, kind of call it that synchronous thing, which we had one department that had been doing this for years and they're doing it great. And the rest of us are still trying to find those best practices. Our instructional designers And our faculty development people are still struggling and trying to work that because they've been so focused on here's how you create this great online course, which is asynchronous. And now they're having to come forward with those kinds of issues, too. I don't think that this is going away. Asynchronous is going away. I think that our challenge is trying to find the best way to engage our students as they're sitting there as a box, trying to figure out those tensions and trying to figure out, you know, are the students, should they be should they be showing their faces online or not? What if they aren't showing their faces? There's a lot of debate going on right now. What are the practices we're expecting of our students if they are in a synchronous class? What are the practices we're expecting of faculty? So as you know, Chris had alluded to, that they aren't that talking head. What are the things, how are the challenges, how are we going to be working with our faculty to meet the needs of our students? And especially when we have these first-year students coming in from the traditional this is what they're going to expect from us. Because this question of best practices in terms of values and and strategies, it really forces, or at least forced me, to go back to my pedagogical values, right? Because as I engaged in different technologies, my values didn't shift. 
right? And so I think best practices emerge between the the values that you have in terms of your pedagogy and the constraints of the technology and how you make the best creative use of those constraints in order to achieve your values. So for me, my values are, I focus on pedagogical values on process to achieve outcomes. I focus on learning over grades and I focus on interactivity. So if those are my values, my my pedagogical values, then how do I engage through the technology and through the transition in such a way that I can have best practices emerge to achieve those values through the technology, right? What I did find in terms of best practices as well is the things that move forward is that we can achieve more access in some ways. So I was thinking like the very pragmatic thing like office hours, right? So my st- like students can't always get to my office during office hours. And so I'm going to let them zoom in, right? Like I can't get to your office during that time, but can you, can I zoom in for five minutes to your office? Right. And so that's something that can increase access, which is another one of my values. Right. And so how do I make this technology increase access moving into the future? And I also completely, and this is back to the talking head thing, I completely revamped the ways in which lecture operates. And I'm not going to give that up either. I mean, I like talking to people and I found in the transition that I was doing it too much in my regular classroom, in-person classroom as well, right? And so that's another thing I'll move forward. It's like, all right, Mindy, you don't need to listen to yourself speak so much. Maybe we need to break it up. Maybe that three to five minute time period that my students actually, the analytics tell me that my students are actually watching my online content. Maybe I need to bring that forward because that's better for them, right? It's not just about me. And I just wanted to know if anybody else had the best practice that they wanted to share. <laughs> you know, so we're talking about it sort of abstractly. And so is there like, an, like a specific thing that you can say, this is the thing that came out of this that I'm going to continue to do? Sure. One thing that I've done that I would consider a best practice is that you know, I had always been given the advice that it's good to have a check-in with my students to see how the semester is going. And I historically always had that be one fairly lengthy, like, survey-type response about a third of the way into the semester to get really formal responses back from them about how different components of the class were going. And I think one of the things that I have been doing with the pandemic that I am going to keep going forward is more frequent, smaller, less structured check-ins where I can get far more of a sense from students, both how the class is going in sort of a broad picture, but also if there's really small things I could tweak that can help them in the class. And so, you know, it can be an opportunity for a student to say, I can't see your handwriting. Can you write a little bit bigger? Or, you know, really small things that a student is generally not going to feel comfortable telling me unless I give them this opportunity. And so, In my classes, I give daily reading quizzes to incentivize them to do the reading before they come to class. And so just tacking on one open-ended question of, you know, what's something that's either going well for you or not going well for you this semester that I could possibly switch? And students are telling me, you know, a lot of them are this concrete thing that is really helping them, which I'm like, all right, great. I can continue doing that or small things that I can change. And I think that that's something that, you know, is the best practice in order to make sure that the things we think are working are working and in real time, not using this class to improve future classes, but the things you can do right now in this semester as well. Well, thinking about best practices too, how do we ensure equity 
we know that in this on we were looking at a situation where our, our student populations were the most diverse ever and yet the pandemic has brought out that many of them are disproportionately impacted by the uh, technology by the pandemic by the health disparities you name it right how do we how do we reckon with that how do we how do we balance all of that out i think the question you raise uh, and you connected health disparities to it is very important because I think one of the ways that the pandemic has really illustrated to us is, uh, well, access and other kinds of resource issues are definitely more visible now, where U.S. university infrastructures had, at least in the university, had this whole equity of everybody having the same internet access speed. When you're in your own personal spaces, you're struggling with maybe do I need to increase my bandwidth in some way? Do I have to shape my plan or pay more for my plan in some other ways? The other aspect here with the health disparities part is that it's part the whole concern of wellness and safety and issues that relate to people's well-being to the forefront. And it seems all right in terms of best practices to check in as Elena, I think I'm pronouncing your name correctly, with your students at the beginning of the class to say, how's everybody doing? How are we, how's, how's, how's everybody's presence here? Uh, what is everybody present to learn in the ways that we used to take for granted before in the classroom and being present in class to take attendance was assumed you were well. Um, so I think that a little bit of health and wellness and well-being has become a more mainstream part of our, our discourse now in, in the classroom. The other aspect of equity is that we've also, with the attendant aspects of all these social movements and the awareness of racial and uh, the intersectionalities between uh, racial, economic, and various sorts of uh, gender, age, parenthood, all those aspects have become, uh, they're, they're there. We, we Universities have dealt with them. We've had movements in our classrooms, in our, in our schools, where concurrently as we were moving on offline, we were also dealing with the Black Lives Matter movement. And these uh, that happened at Salisbury, we were addressing all of that even as we were going offline. So I think one of the best practices that emerged both for the institution and for me as an instructor were that multiple modes of communication and two-way communication, listening in by both by administrators, by instructors, and checking in with students, not just with respect to technology. Somebody made that point. But also as we kind of uh, look at, I think Mindy said with Zoom, you can have your office hours there. But another thing that has happened is that when we look at our classrooms, we have that aspect of checking in with our students on the chat box, a lot more casual, and it's got that personal touch to it. It opens up a space of communication. So best practices for me is integrating, of course, health and wellness and that, uh, those conversations with the learning experience, multiple modes of communication, both institutionally as well as in the classroom with the instructor and the student, chat boxes, different ways of zooming in with your office hours, as also enhancing your instructor presence to be a little bit more human with respect to understanding whether the students' environments and ours intersect at a very similar level with respect to struggles with disparities and those kinds of constraints, technological, and also a lot of the other intersectionalities that we've been going through socially as a society. One of the things that I would mention here as a communication scholar and to my colleagues as well as people out there is, what's the purpose? Like, what are we trying to do with some of the things that we're talking about? And the health disparity thing is the one that came up 
quite often for me the last six months. And I'd love to see if you guys shake your heads, if this has happened to you as well, or if you're listening, if, if people agree, where when students said that they were ill, whether it was COVID-19 or something else, there would be this sort of de facto, I'll just zoom in. And that to me was my first pushback to that was always, well, are you, are you healthy enough to like to do the zoom? Because when I don't feel good, I don't want to be on Facebook. I don't want to be on the computer. I want to be in front of law and order on the couch with, you know, something to drink and that's it. Like, I don't want to be zooming or, or working my mind. And so I wonder too, if we'll see some health disparities here where people are like, Oh, just zoom in, just zoom in. But you really have a student for six weeks who was ill and not getting the same experience as a student who's like, has their computer on, their webcam ready to go, they've got their notes up and ready to go. And we don't really know those answers because we can't reach into their office or their dorm and see if they are laying on the couch watching Law and Order. So I, that's something, I don't know if y'all have experienced the same thing, but people would say, I'm just going to zoom in thinking it was identical as much as we tried to create it to be identical. I think that I can see where not coming to, you know, focus on your health versus the class, but this gives them an opportunity to stay up with the class without. So I think that there might be some with that. I think that we really need to be thinking about as institutions, our students and what their capabilities are, especially our our distance students. Um, One of the things that I like to do is I send out a survey before classes even begin. And one of the questions that I put on this call was, what do you have? What is your bandwidth like? What is your internet access like? Have you had, you know, and, and I tell them, you don't have to tell me this, but have, is there anything that you want me to know about your situations? Because that will help me not only with my expectations, but also help me and what the students produce and what they are willing to share and, and give to me. I think that we really do need to have some grace and compassion and recognize that our students are all going to be coming at us from different directions. We have a lot of first-year students, our first-year generation students at our campus, a lot of first-generation, that this is their first experience of college anyway. They may be low income. They may not be able to afford some of the things that, that we're expecting. They're losing their jobs because of the pandemic, and they don't have the mentorship that they would have in a face-to-face type of situation. Some people have said that Zoom kind of flattens the system that anyone can be on Zoom. I don't know if I agree with that or not. I do recognize that, yes, anyone can come and talk to me at any time within limits, not at two in the morning, which I've had a student dry, but it it does open that equation. But I think that we have the issue of some people can't, don't even have the access to Zoom. I wanted to sort of answer this question about equity in terms of I think a lot of the things we've been focusing on are sort of like the short term, what are the immediate things we can do right now in our teaching, which I think are critically important. But I think it's also important to be thinking about the ways in which this is not just a short term problem, but the way in which this will continue to impact our students' trajectories. And so, you know, if we think about what research shows about, you know, we're so far, we're talking about the students who are successfully in our classes, but we can think about the students who have been forced to take breaks because, you know, their parents and they lost their access to childcare or, 
you know, students who have had such a bad mental health crisis that they've had to withdraw for the semester. And so I think that it's really important to think about what are we doing in our own classrooms to be inclusive? But I think it's also really important to think about both what can we do as individuals to reach out to students? We know students who take breaks are going to be less likely to graduate. We know they're going to be, you know, their GPAs might be lower, their financial aid might be at risk. And so what can we do as individual instructors or faculty members, both to like reach out to students that we know and provide encouragement or support or help, but also pressure our institutions to make sure that they're making the sort of changes to policies that are needed to help students continue to succeed. So what are, you know, a lot of the students who come from wealthier backgrounds are actually experiencing this time as a relative academic success. They have fewer things going on in their lives as a lot of extracurriculars have shut down. So they're actually seeing higher GPAs, more engagement, more time for their coursework. And so that gap we've always had between students who have more privileges and fewer is growing. And what are we doing to support the students who are facing even more troubles than they have historically? Are we changing things about the ways in which withdrawals show up on students' transcripts and factor into their GPAs? Are we changing the ways in terms of potentially like major requirements or gen ed requirements in ways that can help students who have disproportionately borne, you know, the trauma of this pandemic and its economic and public health outcomes be able to continue to engage in our institutions or are we going to lose them? Are they going to be students who, you know, who never end up graduating, who end up, you know, riddled with student loan debt and instead of college being a pathway for mobility, just ends up being someone who's stuck in an even worse economic position than they were before. And so I think it's both what can we do as individuals and what can we make sure our institutions are doing as well. I don't think that we can move on from the discussion of equity without talking about race. That you had mentioned that there was a highest population of folks diversity, the, like the increased diversification in the university and what are the effects of the pandemic specifically in terms of diversity. And I have to say that one of the biggest challenges for my university is the question of DEI. And I'll just give you a specific example, which is to say that the population in the state of South Carolina that identifies as African-American is 27.9%. The population at the University of South Carolina Columbia campus that identifies as African-American is 10.2%. So we have a recruitment issue and we have an access issue, right? And... One of what I'm hoping, and I don't have any data to support this, but one thing that I'm hoping is that because of the inherent problems with testing systems as part of the admissions process, that has been a way to provide an additional disadvantage or disincentive for people of color and disadvantaged populations to be able to get access to the university or to apply to the university. One of the pandemic responses is to not require the ACT or the SAT for admissions for the year of 2021 at the University of South Carolina. And so in terms of equity, and there's going to be a certain, like the disadvantaged population that Elaine is talking about, we're, they're, they're gonna go away. People who don't have money are gonna just, and this is referring to Benita's intersectionality question. I mean, there's going to be a certain population that intersects in particular vectors that is going to, they're not gonna have access to higher education. It's not, I mean, there's gonna be folks who lose it. But I'm hoping that there are also folks who gain some, particularly at the because of this testing requirement not being for admissions. And I think that the University of South Carolina is not alone in that. 
like waiving that requirement for admissions. So I think that, you know, it's it's talking about getting getting access to diverse populations is a struggle at my university. And I think uh-huh. it's probably a struggle in higher education. It is a struggle in higher education, right? Yeah. So I'm really interested in, I'm sorry, Trevor, to no, no, it's fine. pause on that. But I think that, you know, I'm wondering if it, what your experiences are at your, your universities, what kind of DEI initiatives in response to the pandemic are emerging, if any, in terms of, you know, just making certain that the most marginalized populations are being targeted are in a positive way for access. Well, and it's not just at the undergraduate level. A lot of graduate programs have eliminated the GRE as a requirement and uh, in large measure for increased uh, diversity points. I don't know that this question about race and diversity and inclusion is all that separate from the question about student expectations in a post-pandemic world. So, uh, Matthew, do you have any any thoughts on how those expectations are changing and how institutional openings or institutional broadening of student populations and the profiles there along racial, socioeconomic lines, et cetera, might have an impact on those expectations moving forward? Someone mentioned earlier, uh, and I think it's a really important point, that not that just because classes on Zoom and, and you know you can you can get Zoom on on a, on a cell phone. You can get Zoom on, on a, with a wireless connection. Doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has even those components to access it. Uh, but I do think that technology can be very much an, an equalizer if done right. In fact, I was you know as I'm sure many of us were both for education purposes, for healthcare purposes, etc. Uh, happy to see a recent infrastructure plan that included access to affordable uh, high speed internet everyone. And so that's where I think we can get closer to technology being uh, the equalizer. And we are dealing, you know, very much with a population of, I'm sure you use the term digital native for quite a while now. And I think it's it's apt, but it's also a further integration of, of digital interaction, technological interaction, not just being exposed to it at a younger age, but it being in part raised on it, or or in some cases, unfortunately, raised by it, that this is so much a part of the, the language, the communication, the understanding, the interaction of the world with the generation coming into uh, learning right now, that I think that their expectations will align very much with that, that they will expect the institution to be tech savvy and to have not just technology integrated, but to have it smoothly integrated into their practices. Uh, I think that students are, you know, probably have as much, whether they know it or not, power over the education sector right now as they ever have with their choices of whether or not to go to school. And with an understanding maybe from a generation of parents that maybe they don't need to right now, or maybe it's not the right time. And so as we as institutions get more competitive, for lack of a better word, for students, that's an area that we have to excel in to be competitive. We have to meet them where they are in ways that they are used to communicating in, learning with. And if we don't, I don't think we're going to do them service. I don't think we're going to, to meet their needs uh, unless we can speak in that language and speak fluently in that language. And I think in that way, it, it does become, to, to tie into the previous question, it does become more of an equalizer. It, it, in technology, uh, often inherently does. Well, and I know the uh, 
various proposals coming out of the government in the new administration are also targeting increases in funding to HBCUs, to historically serving Hispanic institutions, Native American or Indian colleges and universities. And that might hasten exactly what you're talking about, Matthew, which is because in many ways, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to some degree, the the technological expectations does cut across racial, ethnic barriers to some degree. And so regardless of the school you're going to, the young digital native, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, what have you, is going to have certain expectations. And that that's fascinating. It does ask or raise the next question, which is, how do you think this is going to have an impact on general students and their decision-making about higher education? Do they go to school now? Do they delay? Um, How do they make these decisions? And again, going back to the question of of diversity and inclusion and race, is it the same calculation across the board with these new opportunities? Do diverse students have the, or students from underrepresented uh, minority groups, do they have the same calculations in their minds about when and where to go to school? What do you think? Well, first off, I think that the way that we are envisioning education, our traditional thought of what education is with our four-year degree or our master's, I think some of that is going to be changing. We're seeing a lot of talk about, and we're seeing a lot of um, information that you don't need that four-year degree to be able to be successful. And I think that Even us as four-year degree campuses and higher campuses need to start thinking about our the smaller programs to meet the needs of some of these students. Maybe it's certificates in areas. Maybe it's that they're taking one or two classes at a time, and it may take them 10 years to graduate. And if we have a block of time where we say that they have to graduate within or that they have to take all this within a certain amount of time or they have to start over, Um, Maybe they have prior learning information from jobs or things that they've learned in other jobs that we need to take forward and look at that. Could that count towards credits? I think that we have to be a bit more global in what our institution is going to be looking at going forward, because these are some of the things that without, we also need to make sure that we still have the quality there, that we still have the expectations, of course. But I think that the traditional school or institution that we're in may not fit for as many students as it has in the past. And we have to be nimble enough to change with that. Uh Uh Yeah, Elena. So I think that there's a few things that come to mind with me when thinking about this question. One of them is that I think a lot of, if we think about the discussions that are happening, like in, you know, among public officials, in newspapers, we often see a lot of this focus really centered on highly selective universities, like how will this impact Harvard? And those are the wrong questions to be asking because (laughs) the vast majority of our students do not attend universities like that. So I think that for highly selective universities, we will see little, if any, change in terms of how students think about approaching higher education. But I think that what we might see changes with are students who are not trying to attend highly selective universities, students who are coming you know, who might be the first in their family to go to college or, you know, who are coming from high schools where, you know, they got, you know, A's and B's, maybe some C's. How are those students going to be thinking about higher education going forward? The way in which we've seen higher education systematically defunded over the last few decades has 
really resulted in a shift in terms of who colleges are prioritizing trying to bring in. More and more colleges are trying to bring in students who come from wealthy families who can help make up that gap. So as the states, as the federal government have spent less money on higher education, that gap has to come from somewhere in terms of how does the college stay financially afloat? And the answer is donations, but only you know wealthy universities can really rely on donations. Or the answer is full tuition-paying students. And so a lot of those students are being recruited. We're seeing this huge move in higher education to cater increasingly to wealthy students' desires. So investing in nicer student centers, you know, revamping their gyms, these things that, you know, make college in some ways I've seen you know, criticisms more like a country club or, you know, summer camp experience. But that's not who are most of our students attending colleges. That's not what a lot of those students need. And I think as a lot of these lower and middle income students have experienced college in this year and have started really understanding how much of their money is going towards things that they may or may not need or want as part of their higher education experience, we might see some of those students starting to make different choices. And so we might see some of those students not seeing it worth the premium to pay for more expensive, you know, the flagship state school or, you know, private colleges as someone who works at a private college, I can still absolutely say this, that some of those students might realize that that money is not worth it because those are not the things they need to succeed. And instead, we might see more of those types of students, you know, potentially seeking out other forms of higher education, the ones that are often overlooked in media discussions of this mm-hmm. topic. Yeah, Vanita, from the regional public <laughs> realm. Yes, and I wanted to to follow up on some of the very good points that Elena made to extend them to what Trevor, you talked about, how would different groups of students respond to these challenges? And I think one of the one of the aspects that I, that sort of is also embedded in this uh, discussion is that with the kinds of uh, social justice concerns that our students have become so involved in recently on campuses and so vocal about, I feel like those might play into their enrollment and universities recruitment efforts as well. I feel like uh, some of the universities will need to be uh, more proactive about including these kinds of their stance and their approach to uh, creating a more inclusive and equitable environment in maybe their mission statements on the websites and different ways of presenting their uh, ethos and culture because students are looking for those things. I In most of my classes, uh, students are primarily white and some of them who come from minority backgrounds are very interested in knowing how the school or how their institutions are dealing with certain issues, not just rhetorically, but in action. And what kinds of programs do they have in place? What offices do they have in place? How are they marketed? But not just in terms of, well, there's one one black student in this photo just because, but how does it show up in their dorms? How does it show up in the classrooms? And those practices become questions for of choice in choosing which institutions they would go to. I think the other aspect is that of greater flexibility that uh, Shannon, I think, alluded to earlier about having online as well as uh, hybrid classrooms for students who may want to juggle work as well as uh, family lives and different forms of career options, certificate courses moving onward. I think the most interesting point uh, remains to be seen how institutions will grapple with the loss of international students and global programs and study abroads, and there may be opportunity in that. Uh, I think 
Matthew alluded to that with technology being an equalizer, but there can also be severe constraints with how we manage these and especially different kinds of global regions where these you may recruit students and you may have different forms of classrooms and degree structures to restructure the institutional environment and degree around that. I think that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I'm on the one hand heartened by all of this, but on the other hand, I'm a little dispirited because I'm curious, do you all believe that we're looking, is Alana right or Lena right? Are we looking at a more stratified higher education system where the the rich kids all go off to at more, more stratified than it is now, right? The rich kids all go off to Harvard and Yale. There might be some diversity and the schools are going to have to worry about how they deal with persistent social justice issues, et cetera. But is it all going to be stratified by wealth? And, you know, those in the middle class and the poor are ended up at, and it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, but they, their choices are limited, let's say. I know it makes me nervous, that's for sure. I sat with a uh, master's student the other day, and she wanted to apply to doctoral programs, notably an EDD program. And so we looked at three EDD programs across the country. And two of those were distance, right? So we're using the word distance because that's pre-pandemic language, of course. And they were from really good private schools, one in Texas and the other in central Tennessee. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. And one of them national champions, right? And so we then went to the tuition and fees button and the cost of the EDD at the Tennessee school was $2,100 a credit hour. So it was about five, six grand a course for a doctor of education to be $100,000. Now, who, who can afford that if you're then making half that your first year out of your program? And if you're taking federal student loan money at federal student rates of six and 7%, Rich people is the answer. And then looked at the state institution up the road from me here in Tampa. They were like 250 a credit hour, which is a steal. But then that program will probably only let the 10 people in that were, were, you know, 4.9 GPAs. They were the president of every communication association ever created. As you guys have seen, probably Atlanta has uh, four published articles before they even get their first job. So we're creating a disparate, I think, group. And it technology is actually allowing some of these private schools to charge more for the convenience, not less. So to your point, I think we'll still see kids that want to go to the University of Florida for football, and we'll still see kids that want to go to Indiana University for fraternity life or go to Hawaii for marine life and things like that. And it'll be the same kids it always was. But we have to make sure that some of these schools don't price out and box out some of our middle to lower class populist students. And and I worry about that. I don't know if my colleagues do, but I I get nervous about it. And then use the technology to do it even more. Right, right. Right. So we're convenient. You happen to have a family or uh, you have a real job, so to speak, that's going to pay for this. So we don't mind charging so much money because it's just, it's almost like healthcare in America. We don't mind charging so much because Pricewaterhouse is going to pay for it, not you. And so that sort of then creates this false inflation and then little guys come along and can't get access. And that's, that's not good. No. 
Add to that what uh, Elena also mentioned, which is the declining share of state support for public institutions. And that's happening across the board, although the federal, federal government and the relief programs have sort of stepped in somewhat to stem the tide on that. But add that into it, and suddenly the public options don't become quite as attractive either. You know, and that's a real bind. Yeah. Any other thoughts on student expectations, student choice making, where higher education is going with regard to diversity, equity, inclusion, student choices, student expectations, post-pandemic world? Yeah, Elena. One more thing really quick. One thing that I think I've been excited to see is students, I mean, we've sort of mentioned this, but students really challenging their universities to not use the pandemic as an excuse to not take this moment of racial justice seriously, that I think a lot of us, rightly so, you know, we focused a lot today on how incredibly stressful and challenging it was for a lot of us to, you know, totally redo our courses for those of us who had been teaching in person, or even people who had been teaching online ways to like adapt it to this new pandemic context. And I think one of the things that I've been really excited to see in my experience here at St. Lawrence has been students saying, yeah, we know it's tough, but that's not an excuse to not do more of this work. And so we still want to see you, you know, challenging white supremacy in your classrooms. We still want to see you, you know, decolonizing your syllabi. We want to see, you know, we want to see more action. And so, for instance, one of the things, the debates going on at my university right now is that a group of students of color have asked that faculty be required to engage in diversity training. And there's been a lot of pushback among the faculty. I've been very disappointed to see. We were supposed to vote on it this semester and that vote has been postponed because honestly, it's not clear that it would pass. And so I think something that has been exciting to me is that students are continuing to push back and saying, we we deserve an, a higher education experience that is inclusive of the students of color on this campus. And we refuse to bend to the status quo and we refuse to, you know, use, allow you to use the pandemic as an opportunity to not improve the racial climate on campus. And so that's something that has been really inspiring to me, even if, yes, there are days where it's like, I realize, oh, wow, this lesson plan I used before isn't what I want it to be. Or look at my intro syllabus and realize we didn't spend a single day talking about indigenous people and realizing I need to change that for this semester. And yes, that caused stress, but that's stress that I'm really glad that they put on me. And my teaching has gotten better because of the intersection of this as a time where the pandemic is causing us to rethink teaching can also be a time to really infuse more you know, racial justice in the way that we're thinking about it, particularly if we listen to the student activists who are you're telling us what they need. You know, it's interesting too, as you're talking about that, uh, it kind of harkens back to Matthew's point about the digital native. I also think, and it cuts across the board, right? It's not just the students of color. It's, it's the white students as well. They are diversity natives, right? I mean, they are many, not all, obviously, but ever the students and their expectations, they are all clamoring for this greater diversity. And I think that's a really important point. That might lead nicely to our, to our sort of wrap-up question, which is uh, a round robin, right? What's the primary lesson that anybody has learned or that you've all learned from this past year? If you had to say one thing and one thing that's going to last, what's that primary lesson from the, uh, 
pandemic. And we can go in reverse order. So Shannon, what's your primary lesson from the pandemic for teaching, learning, and teaching and learning? Embrace change. Change is inevitable. Embrace it. What are the ways that you can make things work? Mindy had brought up something quite well earlier about how can she make herself work with the technology? Don't let the technology lead you. How can you make change work? And that's probably, I mean, we know that change happens. We know that it's continuous, but the pandemic isn't going to go away. Even with vaccinations, we have new things that are going on and we just need to be flexible and embrace change. The other thing I, the other, I have two. The other one, <laughs> the other one is grace. I've, I've learned to extend more grace than I have in the past. I wouldn't say I was a hard ass, but I was known to be a bit more, um, at high, really strong expectations. And while those expectations have not gone away, I've also had to learn to be more open, more compassionate, and extend grace. That's great. So embrace change and practice grace. Uh, I like that. Matthew, what do you think? What's the primary lesson that we can take away? I've learned more so to trust in the resiliency and the tenacity of our student body and our faculty, to listen to them and respond uh, with an open mind. Uh, That has been, I think, one of our keys to what I would call success, although it's nothing to celebrate necessarily in the hardships that we've gone through, but to have have as much of our finger on the pulse uh, of what our student body is saying so we can we can uh, adjust and be flexible to them and just trust that they're going to uh, adapt they're going to get there as long as they have the tools and as long as we are responsive to them and that's our obligation to listen and to respond so as long as we do that they'll bring the grit uh, in order to be successful we do have to listen we do have to provide the tools I know I speak for academics and faculty everywhere when I say we love to hear that from a dean. <laughs> That's a great primary lesson. Chris, what do you think? What's your big takeaway from the pandemic year of teaching and learning? I think from my perspective, Moravian talked about immediacy, which all of us have probably heard in our speech studies in some way, right? Our immediacy is our connection to people. And I think now more than ever, the creation of immediacy, being able to feel close to our colleagues and our students is important. And so we see it, even though we are adjusting, like Shannon said, to Zoom and all this stuff. I don't know about you guys, but when I go over to campus for something, I I get like a bump because I've seen somebody I haven't physically seen and being able to like elbow bump or whatever, you know? So that was the first thing is that immediacy is real. Moravian studies were true and McCroskey in his footsteps. But I think also the idea that I have, and many of you have probably seen this, I've never realized how hardworking some of my colleagues are to the fault of like, girl, you need to stop or you're going to get sick kind of thing. Like people working around the clock to make sure that their experience for their students has been flawless. And so it's really exposed, I think, just how good our careers are and how good and hardworking some of our colleagues are. And that makes me kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of happy. Yeah. No, that's great. Elena, what do you think? What are our big takeaways from pandemic life? One of my biggest takeaways has been an even deeper commitment to universal design for learning. So the idea 
that I should make my class accessible to all students so that no one needs to request accommodations. So, you know, we already know students are dealing with a lot of things outside of their lives that impact them. My teaching philosophy is that a student is a person first and a student second. So if there's something interfering with their ability to be a successful student, that's more important and that's what should be addressed first. And then we can work together, you know, to help them succeed in my class. And I think trying to think through even more structures that are potentially creating unnecessary barriers. And so for instance, with quizzes, making all quizzes untimed. So then students don't have to request individual accommodations for the fact that they need extra time and instead making it so that all students can universally access our classes or, you know, not penalizing students in their participation grade for needing a mental health day, you know, whether that be because of a mental health crisis, because, you know, the student of color who's, you know, struggled with yet another police shooting, you know, all these sort of things to build in the structures that individual students don't have the burden of asking me for it, but instead, me thinking through how can I structure my classes so that it is accessible for everyone from the get-go. That's sort of the manifestation of of Shannon's uh, extension of grace, I think, Uh, recognizing that maybe all those old standards and expectations that we had don't need to be quite so, quite so rigidly held to. Mindy, uh, what do you think? What's our, what's your big takeaway from the uh, pandemic year? Yeah, I would like to just echo what was just said about, you know, grace and changing the ways which my expectations, I want them to be performed. And so so it's not a lowering of expectations. It's a changing of the measure of how, how they are performed. And so that goes back to one of those best practices things, because, yeah, like one of the things I'm going to bring forward is like have online quizzes that they can take whenever they want to. So both so that. They can do that. And plus, I don't have to waste class time necessarily on that. We can do something better in the in-person environment than sitting and writing on a piece of paper. But those are the micro things, macro things. Responsiveness is one one lesson. And both on a, on a pragmatic level, like being, being more responsive to things like communication, like responding to emails and that kind of stuff, but also a responsiveness. So that's a responsiveness to students, responsiveness to colleagues, you know, when they ask for help and like, I don't know if I can help you necessarily, but I'm going to try to do what I, I can. And then also a responsiveness to self and with self-care because we have mental health days too, right? And, and we'll be better for our students if we, if we do that for ourselves. Second thing is adaptation. The capacity to adapt creatively and with consideration, right? Not just haphazardly. And so to think about constraints as being creative opportunities as opposed to things to resist. And so technological constraints, time constraints, I mean, how do we, how do we use those as creative possibility? And then finally, a new uh, understanding of time. I've been filling out I've been filling out all the surveys that all the people doing all the studies about teaching and research in the academy have been sending me. I've been trying to participate in those research so that the data gets collected. And some of the questions have been really interesting about time. Like prior to the pandemic, how many hours a week did you spend on X? And how was pandemic did you spend on X? And I'm like, there's no hours during a pandemic. Right. And if you're working from home, there's not an eight hour thing. You're working potentially all the time. And so you're moving from being in a Zoom call to letting the dog out to making dinner to going to teach your kids on on Zoom to 
taking care of an uh, um, elderly parent to helping a neighbor and then going back to, you know, your research and then going back to your teaching, that can all happen with the expanse of 60 minutes. So what, so a different understanding of time and work that I hope gets propelled into the future because this notion of hours does work in a lot of, a lot of academic disciplines and in teaching. Yeah, I've asked more than a few people who've wished me a good weekend. I'm like, what is this thing you're calling a weekend? You know, <laughs> those have gone away. That's such a momentous question. <laughs> I think I would, if I had to put one word to it and expand on that, I would say to look at the people in my classroom, and you can fill in with colleagues as well, and our, our, our administrators and everyone in our community, as a whole person, as someone who's uh, looking at that learning environment as not just a brain who's come to your class, but who's coming in there with certain struggles and that are embedded in their daily life and their particular identities, to be mindful of their differences. And one of the things that came up in this regard in our teaching and learning council meeting was include all of these things in the kind of difficult conversations that sometimes might can be drawn up, drawn out through our class uh-huh. content so not to not to shy away from those discussions include them in where those intersections come in and to communicate with your presence a certain amount of compassion uh-huh. towards these issues and willingness to be vulnerable to them i love it Compassion, grace, flexibility, time, all really important ways that the pandemic has taught us, I hope, in the end, to be better students and better learners and better teachers all around the globe and and in our classrooms. So thank you all so much. This has been a great discussion, and I really think people will benefit and profit from hearing your thoughts about what we've learned from this interesting year that we've been through. So thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, thank you again for tuning in to this special episode of Communication Matters. You can learn more about NCA's public programs by visiting the public's programs page on the NCA website at natcom.org slash public programs. And as always, be sure to subscribe to Communication Matters wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for joining us again on Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives. Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director Trevor Perry Giles. The podcast, organized at the National Office in downtown Washington, D.C., 
is produced by Assistant Director of External Affairs and Publications, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, 